welcome to this episode of the TurfNet University podcast series, a supplement to the TurfNet University webinar series sponsored by Brand. Our guest today is University of Tennessee entomologist Frank Hale. Frank's going to talk to us today about some of the common insect pests that he sees across Tennessee in warm and cool season turf, share some management tips and talk about some unique projects he has going on with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So sit back and take a listen. Frank, you have a lot of varied responsibilities as an extension agent in the entomology and turf pathology department at the University of Tennessee, and you're located in in central Tennessee in the Nashville area. Tell us a little bit about your responsibilities for those who might not be familiar with you. Sure. Well, I'm an extension professor, uh, entomology professor with the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology at the University of Tennessee. And um, as, such, as such, I work with a lot of different commodity groups. I work primarily with ornamental plants, tree shrubs, but also I, I take the, to do the turf grass. And that could be sports fields, it could be a backyard, sod farms, all aspects of turf. And I'm also an uh, entomologist works with fruit and vegetable crops, tobacco, and one of our newer crops in Tennessee, hemp industrial hemp. But uh, it's interesting working for all those different crops. You see some of the same pests. You know, black cutworms can attack turf grass or they can attack vegetable crops. Somebody just sent me a southern army worm picture this morning that was attacking garlic. So some of the caterpillars are, they get on lots of different type plants. Some are more selective, more specialized. So in general, it's just a fun, fun job. You've got your Ph.D. at Ohio State and a master's degree in entomology at Clemson, but your college career started at the University of Cincinnati. You don't see a lot of people coming to the ag or the turf business out of the University of Cincinnati. It seems more like the logical path there likely would be coming directly through Ohio State. How did you get involved in all this coming out of UC? Well, you see, I, I had a, a, a major was biology. And back in the day at University of Cincinnati, we had the uh, quarter system instead of semesters. So you would have three quarters instead of two semesters, which allowed me to take a lot of classes. So I got a really broad uh, background. I took plant courses. I took you know, vertebrate zoology. I took all sorts of courses. And one of the courses I took senior year was entomology. I did pretty well in it, you know. So, and then I also met an entomologist at a local college, Wilmington College, where I grew up. And he was really, uh, you know, people that really like what they're doing, it's infectious. So I always say I caught the bug. And in 1976, I actually went with uh, Dr. Tom Wood, the entomologist, to Costa Rica. And he had a research trip, and I got to tag along. And once you go to the rainforest and see all the diversity of insects and bird life and everything, snakes, everything else, well, that was just that was just something else. I was pretty much hooked. And then, then when I was done with college, you know, well, you got to get a job. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I said, well, let me go. Let me look at entomology graduate schools. Of course, being from Ohio, 
I said, well, I might want to go a little south. It's a little cold up there. I've had enough cold winters in Ohio, so actually missed the 1978 uh, big uh, blizzard because I was in Clemson, South Carolina. So really got a good education in general uh, entomology education at Clemson University. Then I went out to work for Texas A&M as a county uh, entomologist, worked with cotton, you know, alfalfa, some of the field crops. So I've had a lot of experience working with a lot of different uh, commodities over the years. But the one thing ties it all together, they all have insect pests. And uh, you have to address them. You can't just ignore them. They're always there. In your current role in Tennessee, you have sort of catch-all duties where you deal with a lot of different plant hosts. Tell us a little bit about what you commonly see in turf, whether it be sod, sports fields, golf courses, particularly at this time of year. What are some of the common issues that the folks manage in these different types of turf media come to you with well in the in the uh, in the spring we can have cutworm problems especially on your greens uh, black cutworm is a pest that really overwinters in the deep south and then they come usually by april they're they fly up on storms and uh, lay their eggs singly on plants and of course they can have their little tunnels or burrows right in in the thatch so they can just one one uh you know if you took a four square foot area where you would use a soap solution or disclosing solution you only need to have one black cutworm in that area that's your threshold to treat so they can you know make a burn spot a dead spot and so that's why those are pretty important um once we get into summer a little bit then we're, we're thinking more about white grubs and uh, they've been overwintering in the ground deep in the soil as it warms up the soil warms up they come up and uh, often pupate and become adults so we're going to see more and more um, phylophaga which are the mayor june beetles we're going to pretty soon here probably already i just haven't seen them yet uh, japanese beetles should be out and uh by midsummer, they're laying a lot of eggs, so that's when we have our um, professionals looking, you know, doing their um, grub counts, where they actually cut into the turf grass, lift back the soil, and look for the tiny grubs. And we we have uh, most of our grubs, like uh, mass shafers and Japanese beetles, are one-year life cycle. But in Tennessee, the May beetles or the Philophaga. They have a probably a two-year life cycle. If you go further north, it might be three years or even more. And so if you go out in the middle of summer and you find a pretty good size, you know, maybe a half-inch size a white grub, it's a one-year-old maybeetle. The other ones you're going to look for in July and August when you're checking your uh, in the soil, those are going to be the newly hatched um, white grubs. So they're going to be much smaller. So you're going to see a combination of one-year-old May beetles plus new May beetles, mass shafers, Japanese beetles, things like that. And we and we have some thresholds that we use for those too. We're, we're basically, we're not. If you look at a square foot, we're not really treating if you only have one or two white grubs per square foot. It's got to be something more. And uh, so we have little charts to help people with that. 
of course, I work at a soil plant and pest center, uh, University of Tennessee Soil Plant and Pest Center in Nashville, where we do our soil testing, but we also have diagnostics. So if you have a uh, white grub that you want identified, we can look at the raster pattern and easily help you determine what those are. And most people can learn to identify them on their own. They're not that tough. Like the uh, Japanese beetle have the little seed or hairs will make a V shape. The uh, green June beetle looks like an exclamation point. You know, it's sort of a stomach of just a straight line. Phylophica or, or May or June beetles, they'll have uh, usually two parallel lines. Sometimes they kind of curve in towards each other. You know, otherwise, white grubs look very similar. The different species, they look very similar. They might be different uh, in sizes, but uh, green June beetles, by far the biggest one. And then we have one on golf courses that the tiniest uh, problem we have is the black turf grass atenius. And, and those are, you know, very small. You can put, you know, a, dozen, a couple dozen on a dime, you know, they're very tiny. And uh, that's as big as they get. But if you have high numbers of them, then you might need to treat. But that's primarily where you have big expanses of turf grass. We don't see it in the backyard. You'll see it on golf courses, places like that. For some of these critters, whether it's grubs or black turf grass centennials, what are numbers that should cause them to be on alert? Well, we have a University of Tennessee publication. It's called Commercial Turf Grass Insect Control. And then it has the publication number PB1342. And on page 17, we have some of these thresholds listed for white grubs. Uh, one of them is like the annual white grubs I mentioned, Japanese beetles. If you have, we don't have oriental beetle here in Tennessee, but further north they do. Well, we we do have uh, small populations of oriental beetle. I was thinking European chafer we don't have. But we do have the southern and northern mass chafers, but these are all one-year life cycle. And uh, so it's usually for the uh, annual white grubs, it's five to ten grubs per square foot, while the uh, mass chafers are 15 to 20 grubs per square foot. Now, why the difference? We've, we know as entomologists, we know that the mass chafers feed not only on live roots, but they also feed on a lot of dead organic matter. So one, one uh, grub is going to do uh, a lot less damage than a Japanese beetle. It primarily feeds on, on living tissue. So it's five to ten grubs per square foot. So, you know, you see there one or two. A lot of people in a backyard that you don't irrigate, you're, you're going to see very low numbers of white grubs, maybe only one or two per square foot. And you're probably not going to need to treat. But in higher quality turf where you're irrigated, Beetles like uh, Japanese beetle, especially, they like the more w moist environment, and you'll find higher populations there. That's why it's always good to go out and sample. If I had a golf course and I had some areas that are low areas, you're probably going to have more Japanese beetles there. It's going to be moister um, over the time. Um, other areas that are a little drier, you might not see the population. So you don't always have to treat the whole um, golf course. You can actually sample and determine, I don't need to treat this top area, but maybe the low area I will. Right, which of course they prefer the moister areas because the eggs require it. 
Yes. Uh, what happens in uh, in the South often will have a pretty dry, hot, dry July, August, even in September. And uh, so that's when these eggs are being laid in July, usually, or early August. And uh, if it's bone dry, a lot of those eggs won't, just like you put uh, beans in a pot of water overnight to swell up or imbibe, well, the, the eggs will actually increase in size if there's adequate soil moisture. So they have to do that before they hatch. And if it's really bone dry out there, the eggs often won't even hatch. So, you know, last year, for instance, we had uh, pretty wet July and August. Then we got to September, we had this flash drought in Tennessee and many places in the south where it just didn't rain hardly at all for a month. Uh, it was very dry and windy, high temperatures. So that, that could affect the, uh, some of the survival of the uh, early instar grubs. Uh, but if it, that would have happened in July and August, even earlier, it, it definitely would have knocked the populations down. I'm not sure if it did as much being just a little bit later, because I'm still finding grubs in the soil. But uh, the uh, temperature and, and uh, you know the amount of moisture in the soil is definitely a big factor. Of course, if you're irrigating, doesn't matter. Uh, because you're going to provide a nice environment for the grubs. Obviously, being in Tennessee, you are in an area where you see a lot of warm season turf grass and a lot of cool season turf grass. Maybe not as much cool season anymore, but I'm sure you still see quite a bit. And how do the pests that you encounter throughout the year how are those unique to the turf, whether it's a cool season or a warm season variety? Well, our, our Bermuda is, of course, a warm season. We have uh, zoysia, Bermuda that we can grow here. Most A lot of uh, backyards are fescue, or mine happens to be Bermuda. My neighbor has fescue, and it looks better until it gets hot and dry, and then my Bermuda starts looking really good. So it, we have a combination of those uh, there's a little Kentucky bluegrass and I know I was talking to Dr. Tom Samples the other day and they were he's going to be speaking in a month uh, uh, about uh, using Bermuda and Kentucky bluegrass together for some high quality turf situations but uh, we have a number of pests uh, that will attack different uh, different uh, plants uh, we see a billbug called hunting billbug that, that will attack Bermuda and Georgia. And so we're seeing more of that uh, in Tennessee. We also have a the, the uh, uh, blue, I think it's a bluegrass billbug that uh, we've also seen some of. But Kentucky bluegrass, like I see in Ohio growing up, it's just not as common here. I mean, the uh, bluegrass varieties. In Tennessee, so it really gets pretty hot. I mean, it'll get hot and dry, and the fescue, if it's not irrigated, it will, it will, it can kill it. I mean, it gets that hot and dry. And uh, of course, the Bermuda has ability to go dormant, and then when it starts raining again, it will come out of it. All the weeds will die, but the and the Bermuda will come back looking better than ever. But many of the same pests we have. Um, 
white frogs are going to affect uh, um, fescues and also Bermudas and zoysia. They're, they're basically just feeding on the root systems, clipping off the roots. I think, though, that uh, a plant like uh, Bermuda that has the rhizomes and, and can and stolons and can spread, uh, if its roots get clipped, you know, off, it can go somewhere else. You know what I mean? The way it grows. We're a, we're a fescue, I like a clump-type grass. If it gets the roots devoured, that whole clump's going to die. And so I think the Bermuda has a little better ability to take some root pruning and still survive. It's pretty tough. I mean, it's the most, if you like the garden, Bermuda gets in your garden, it's hard to get out. You know, it's just a tough plant to deal with. But when you want to have a turf grass situation, you want a tough plant. And so it's, it's a good one. Throughout the course of your career, as climate begins to change, how has that affected pests that you see in Tennessee? Well, one thing that comes to mind is the um, I started in Tennessee in 92. And at that time, we had imported fire ants along the southern tier counties of the state, you know, up against Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. And now we have fire ants that are that have actually moved into southern Kentucky in the land between the lakes area. We had a flood a few years ago in Nashville, and fire ants have a way of just rafting, making a raft and floating down the Cumberland River, and they, they came right out at the land between the lakes and up into Kentucky. So we have, uh, where I live in, around Nashville, we have plenty of fire ants now. So. Uh, uh, many counties in the state have fire ants where when I started they didn't and they of course they can they're a, you know in the soil so they can insulate themselves from cold weather but when you have milder winters that we've had uh, some lately they definitely don't get the uh, dieback of colonies like we had seen in, in, in a real cold winter but really what kills a uh, a fire ant, if, you, if I had to predict, you know, tell you, well, what would be a good scenario? It would be, it's a real warm day in January. I mean, it's been warm for a couple of days. And, and what happens, these ants will go up and down. They, they uh, move the brood and ants come up and down in soil profile. And so you get a real warm day and they're kind of up towards the surface, working off that solar energy. And then you get a bunch of maybe some rain and it kind of floods areas that have to come up and stay up there. And then you get a real cold temperature. So it might go, you know, in the teens. So, so that fluctuation that we see in the, in the uh, transition zone here in Tennessee, we'll get, we get the real warm temperatures in the winter, but then we can get some real cold. So we can, that fluctuation will sometimes kill the soil insects if they get too too active or too close to the surface. For insects in general that are trying to overwinter, it's often better if it just stays cold and they keep kind of below 50 degrees. They, they, they're not using much energy. They just stay that way and they survive the winter better. But it's that up and down temperature change that's harder on the insects. And we have a black imported fire ant. We have the red imported fire ant, two different species 
but we also in Tennessee see a lot of the of a hybrid. And one thing about the hybrid is that we've done studies on it. It can take cold, uh, it can take some colder temperatures and still survive. So it's a little more resistant to cold. So we've just seen a move from the southern tier counties, pretty much north for most of the state. And of course, fire ants are a problem. They can sting people, and they're just uh, not something you want in your neighborhood. They have an alarm pheromone, and it's a you know it's they can it's in the air so to speak. Once they release that, they all start stinging. And same thing you'll see with bees and wasps will do the same kind of thing. If you get one mad, then they all go after you. So, um, and of course, people are allergic. Some people are allergic to the stings of fire ants, just like bees or wasps. So, so it's, yeah, one thing you need to really be aware of, it's probably one of your biggest, when you have people working outdoors, you really need to know what to do if somebody gets stung by a bee, a wasp, a fire ant, uh, especially if somebody is already allergic, but you don't always know. So if somebody gets stung, their tongue starts swelling, they're having difficulty breathing, they just feel whatever, flush, whatever, 911 immediately because it could be life-threatening. People die every year from, you know, we a few weeks ago we had the Asian giant hornet uh, news that came out, and every, every entomologist in the United States probably got flooded with pictures of usually European hornets, southern yellow jackets, you know, other look similar-looking insects that are actually here. And uh, it kept us busy just look, trying to identify things. They don't, I mean, they look different. You know, anybody, you should be able to tell them apart. But uh, the biggest threat, I think, to, uh, you know, Asian giant hornet sounds bad, but uh, a little honeybee, if you're allergic to it, can be just as dangerous because it's your body's response to that, uh, that venom, the allergic response that gets you in trouble. Yeah, and I think anybody, you know, particularly when you're working with mechanized equipment and you have so many of these ground-dwelling insects, one to be particularly aware of are yellow jackets. In my experience, they they don't like necessarily the sound or the vibration of mowing equipment, at least the ones in my yard did not, and that seems to be another insect that has some sort of a uh, alarm type system yeah you know what we what we see this time of year often you'll see little holes like somebody got a pencil and just put holes a series of holes in the turf in the grass usually in areas where you have more uh, bare ground let's say school uh, playgrounds and places like that and those are those are solitary bees and so each little bee, female has her little hole in the ground and she'll provision lay her eggs there and provision in the uh, nest with uh, with uh, bee bread which is pollen and nectar and that's uh, so those solitary each each one has their own little nest those don't tend to sting people so if you see these little bees about the size of a honeybee and they're, they're swarming around little holes in the ground those are nothing really to be afraid of they're pollinators, 
in general, if we see them in the backyard, if it's uh, bothering people, we say, well, wait a month, they'll be gone. You know, they're just active for a certain period of time. Another thing you can do is just irrigate them a lot. They don't like a lot of water. Sort of flood them out and they'll move elsewhere. But uh, uh, it's not anything to be worried about, the solitary type bees. But the yellow jackets, the social insects that have big colonies or big hives, those are the ones where you have a lot of workers and those are the ones you don't want to get near. And they're a real liability because you can be stung in a number of times. For some reason, I don't know why it is, yellow jackets queens overwinter. The queen overwinters maybe in a house or some protected area. They come out in the spring and they find a an animal tunnel, you know, or a burrow and someplace to start their nest. And you don't really see them. You know, you've been mowing your grass all summer, and then about August, September, you notice them. I'm not really sure why that is, other than the population is starting to get at its peak number. And at that time, they've already produced, you know, most of the time, these wasps are going out and they're catching caterpillars. It could be fall army worms. It could be army worms. It could be cut worms. So wasps and bees and hornets and things, they're meat eaters because they have to feed the young. But once that colony gets to a big size, then they have to give them carbohydrate. So that's why at fair time, you often find yellow jackets in your lemonade. You know, you got to watch before you take a drink because there might be a yellow jacket. And at that time, they become more of a nuisance problem and they start, you start getting more stings. And so it's usually later in the summer. It's pretty hot. And remember, insects, the warmer it is, the more active they are. And so you got to be careful. They can move quickly and sting. But we'll get a lot of calls in the late summer about yellow jackets. You mentioned the importance of scouting. Tell us why that's so important. Sure. Of course, I'm an entomologist, and I'm in a department that has plant pathologists also. And many of these disease issues, um, you really have to treat preventatively. You know, we uh, brown brown patch this time of year when you start getting those hot humid nights the fescue has to be protected from the high humidity the the brown patch disease but with insects we can often go out there and actually make some counts and determine do we need to treat or not Uh, and you can't always do that with diseases and so scouting gives you that ability whether you're uh, doing white grub counts or using a soap solution, or we call it disclosing solution, to pour on the grass to see what you can flush to the surface. And every, you know, every time we have an army worm outbreak, a few years ago we had a, we had a, a, a well, a fall army worm outbreak. And so these these insects flew in from south. They don't overwinter here. The fall army worm, for instance. And so if you're actually out there every couple of weeks or every week you want looking for what you can flush up out of the turf grass, you're going to detect these caterpillars. The army worms lay egg masses. A fall army worm will lay an egg mass on vertical. It could be a, a wooden stake or a fence or, you know, outdoor furniture. And then once those eggs hatch, they fall to the ground. And so you often get pretty high uh, populations. 
and they're very tiny. When they first hatch from an egg, they're thread-like. They're very tiny. And then the second instar is still small. And that's the best stage to control a caterpillar is when they're tiny. They're just easier to kill with insecticides. And also, you're not getting the damage. So most caterpillars don't do a lot, like army worms, don't do a lot of damage till they're up into the fourth, fifth instar, which is the larger sizes, the ones... The biggest caterpillars, and that's when they do most of their damage. So if you can control them in the first, second, even third instar, uh, you can prevent most of the damage. And so by doing regular uh, sampling, you can control all the cutworms, the army worms, all those type pests early before you see any damage or very little damage at all. And that's the best way to do it if you can do it. And you might not, of course, you usually don't have to treat. You don't have to treat if you find the insect. And uh, usually if you find army worms, you'll find a lot of them. So that's why I like it. And same, same for white grubs. We can sample square foot of uh, soil, you know, cut the grass. Some people in golf courses will use the uh, cup hole changer, you know, do 10 of those equals a square foot. Uh, same idea. And you can see just what's out there. And uh, if you have high populations, you have to treat. If, if they're very low, save your money. So there's nothing wrong with that. Tell us about the testing you do in conjunction with the USDA. Well, we have a program called uh, Cooperative Agricultural Pest Survey, or CAPS. And it's a cooperative agreement between USDA and either the State Department of Agriculture, or in our case, uh, University of Tennessee, our land-grant university. And what we do is we'll look for certain pests of concern, priority pests, they call them, that the USDA has said, well, if this pest gets on in the United States, it could uh, really impact our cotton crop, for instance. So we actually put out traps, pheromone traps. We'll catch the male moth, and we will look and see if we can catch any of these things. Of course, most of the time, we don't catch anything. Uh, any of these priority pests, pests, but at least we're looking. And uh, I don't want to find anything, you know what I mean? But we're going to be looking for it. If we do find a pest, we can actually make the determination how what you know how widespread it is. If it's really just localized, we can hopefully have somebody go in. USDA will go in and try to eradicate it. So it's a good way for the university to know what's what new pests might be coming into their state, and if so, detect it early so that we it won't get established here. So we look for uh, in, uh, insect pests like wood boring insects that will attack pine trees or other conifers and deciduous trees. We're also looking for pests of oak, uh, Lepidoptera, or you know caterpillar pests of oak that could get over here because oak in Tennessee is our Number one, uh, hardwood tree. We do a lot of make a lot of flooring in Tennessee. So we we don't have gypsy moth established in Tennessee yet. But if we did, we you know we would try to eradicate it. Whenever we see an infestation of gypsy moth in the state, we'll spray with a product like uh, BT Bacillus thuringiensis insecticide. They just kill the caterpillars. They're safe on the beneficials. And they'll usually fly those with a helicopter or a plane, fly over a forest area. So we just want to keep uh, as many invasive pests out of the state as possible. 
And so uh, we we work with our Department of Agriculture and with the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, and uh, always looking for things. So when you're testing for things that that you you haven't found and all sorts of different hosts, it sounds like uh, just the, the testing process alone sounds like quite an undertaking. Yeah, we go. We actually contact landowners. We'll go to parks, get permission to put out traps in parks. So let's say for the uh, wood boring insects, we'll go to parks that have uh, lots of trees, and we'll put our traps, hang them in the trees. Some of them might be four or five foot uh, tall lingering traps, or like a series of black funnels. So an insect will fly. They'll be attracted to a lure, it might be ethyl alcohol, it might be alpha pinene, different lures that will attract different beetles. And they'll hit the funnels and they'll drop down into a collecting uh, dispenser at the bottom. And every two weeks, then we go and check that trap, empty it. Uh, Sometimes we have to replace the lure on a monthly basis or a different basis. So it's a full-time job for uh, college students. I- I'll hire a couple college students from uh, nearby universities at uh, UT Knoxville. They'll use the graduate students uh, to go out and check these traps. And it gives them real-world experience. You know, Some of them might get a job with the uh, USDA APHIS in, in the future. So it gives them a little bit of experience working with uh, pest detection which is very important because with all the trade we have right now in the United States, we're getting a new pest every year. Some people, I think I've heard uh, at least a dozen new pests will come into Florida every year, insect pests. Many of them don't do that much damage, but occasionally you get one that can be a something that really becomes a problem. And once a pest gets here, they tend to stay. They, uh, they expand their... Uh, their reach and and go to different areas and we have it from then on and have to deal with it. So many of the pests we have to deal with every year have been introduced pests. If you get a uh, a new insect pest from China, for instance, it'll get over here and unfortunately it usually doesn't have its parasitoid wasp or other predator insect that helps regulate the population in China that often doesn't come with it. So what happens, uh, classical biological control is when you go back to where you think the pest originated, you study the uh, predators and parasitoids that attack that pest, and you actually introduce, bring those back to a, to a, uh, a safe lab where they can't get out of and actually test them, make sure that they're not going to attack some other insect that we don't want you know, wiped out. And hopefully then when we find that these are safe to release, we don't want to make a problem by bringing some, something in that uh, could affect other things. Uh, we can then uh, start releasing them and studying and seeing if they actually do control. Uh, You've just described emerald ash borer in about two sentences. Yeah, sure. There's several uh, parasitoid wasps that have been introduced. The problem is the, the, uh, they, they might not be synchronous. They might be on, depending where they are. You, uh, one wasp might work in Ohio or Michigan, 
But when you bring this persitoid wasp to the deep to Tennessee or even even further south, it might not be synchronized with the emergence of the emerald ash borer, and they, and they might miss each other. So it's got to be. Uh, if you took a, a map of of the United States, you could overlay it right on China. So China, there's there's parts of China that would be reach up into what we call you know Canada, and there's parts that would be even further south into Mexico. So it's China is a huge country. So when we get pests from there, chances are some of those pests are going to be able to do quite well here because the climate would be very similar. Yeah, and anybody who can't appreciate the effect that some of those wood boring pests have on golf courses and so forth. Just go to some of these places in northern areas where entire stands of trees have been wiped out and you now have trees that played uh, had some strategic importance on a golf course. Now you have dozens of them that are dead and present safety hazards and then have to be removed. Can so, change you know, the tree, entire... Once an ash tree dies, you better take it down fast because it will fall. So it could be very dangerous. And can change the entire uh, way a golf course then and looks and plays. The first time I saw Emerald Ash Borer, I think we went with Dr. Dave Shetler and some others at, uh, at Ohio State. We went up to Michigan and we saw some golf courses with the, these big ash trees that were dead, already dead, and it would have to be taken down. And uh, that's my first exposure to that that pest. Now we have it in uh, Tennessee. It's start, we started first in East Tennessee. Now it's in Middle Tennessee, where I am, around Nashville area. Not yet in West Tennessee. I think Lewis County is probably the furthest west. But um, it's, it's going to take out all ash trees in North America. The only trees to survive are the ones who are going to be treated with an insecticide to protect it. So that's huge. You think about it. All species of ash, we're talking millions of trees, basically going pretty much extinct. We'll have a few trees come out from seed from years to come, but for the most part, that was a big tree. That was one of the dominant biomass trees in our forest. And uh, it's going to be gone. Nothing. You just can't replace something like that. Especially and, uh, if you're the baseball bat industry. Yeah, Louisville Sluggers. I mean, I hope that they should have lots of wood uh, provisioned away for the next. Uh, but have you noticed lately where they've been using different types of wood for bats? But I think ash is the best. It's a little more resilient. has a little more spring to it. Well, Frank, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time and really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you, John. It's been fun. It's always good to talk about insects. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.